1: Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Today, we're joined by Mari Buhati. Originally from Louisville, Kentucky, Mari opted to attend the University of Kentucky in nearby Lexington for college. It was close to home, but far enough so she felt independent as she lived her life authentically in the LGBTQ community. She's had a lifelong interest in volunteering and community organizing, which carried over into her college and professional life. As an undergrad, she began volunteering with local HIV AIDS nonprofits, which sparked a professional interest in public health. She earned her Master of Public Health degree at the University of Kentucky in 2013 with a focus on epidemiology. A creative and passionate public health professional, she has an extensive experience across the HIV AIDS continuum of care. She always saw herself living and working in California. That goal became part of her daily affirmations. While working for the Kentucky Health Department, Mari began attending conferences and networking with other public health professionals. As word of her expertise and experience spread, Mari was tapped to join the global forum on MSM and HIV as public health advisor, developing and managing the global capacity building project to build self-sustainability for trans-led organizations throughout the global South. Mari is now a member of the Pride Studies team. Located at Stanford University, the PRIDE study is the first large-scale, long-term national health study of people who identify as LGBTQ plus or another sexual or gender minority. Mari is the All of Us Research Program Engagement Navigator, working to engage yet-to-be-reached sexual and gender minority subcommunities. Who are new to health research, who have experienced barriers in accessing health care, or who have had negative research experiences. Mari, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today?
2: I'm doing well. We have met yeah, you know, I often like to start with how we met, and I met you in Atlanta which is, like, really, like, people like, you meet people everywhere, but I met you in Atlanta, and you were there for the first day of a conference, and you were there, and, you know, you just round and sort of contributed, and you were there, and one of the nice people. Then the next day, there's this brunch, and the brunch was you. You know, I mean, like, (laughs) you gave a lot of information, and I came away going, like, wow, you know, this (laughs) is something that, you know, I mean, it's something that I said, we need to have it at every – LGBT center across the country. We need to be getting this information. And I think in part because way back in the day I was on the board of NBJC and we went to uh, NIH and they were talking about how they didn't have, you know, we talked about things that that our community needed. And they said, well, you know, we don't have many statistics on that. And it's like, well, how come you don't do something about it? And here you were doing it. So how did a little lady from Kentucky end up in L.A. <laughs> and doing this work?
3: Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I actually so I live in the San Francisco area. Uh, I live outside of Oakland, in nor- northern California. And, yeah, I was, um, I've had a, how far back do you want me to go? <laughs> uh, well,
2: you know what? I mean, because I tell you, you have a master's in public health, and, you know, how did you, public health, what made you decide to go into that to begin with, which
3: sort of led you to this path? Yeah, so um, so I'm from Kentucky. Uh, I'm a black, transgender woman, and uh, so when I uh, went to college, I kind of, uh, I mean, when I was young, I told my mom that, you know, I was, you know, about my gender identity, but I don't. Mm -hmm. it was in the 80s you know nobody knew what that was I didn't even have the right terminology for it but um so it was there always but when I got to college I um decided you know that that was going to do you know to do that uh after I had worked with I've been talking to a therapist there actually um about some issues with, like, creativity and productivity kind of in my classes, which kind of, like, as we peeled the onions of identity and just coming of age, you kind of, like, buried under that was this kind of desired transition. And uh-huh. so, yeah, through that process of being in college and kind of, having this therapist that was kind of helping me through that, I kind of, I was able to maintain, you know, my interest in science and uh, took a lot of biology and I was thinking about being a, uh, a, a doctor or even a nurse practitioner or something like that. That was kind of the path that I wanted to take and um, I decided that I maybe needed some time Uh, in between pursuing those lofty goals of, you know, taking care of people, doing that kind of thing. Uh, So I actually decided to go to get my master's in public health and go to grad school because other people I knew were, you know, like, oh, I'm not ready to apply to medical school, so I'm going to get an and apply. And some of those people actually did go on to become uh, physicians and stuff. But I I just... uh, yeah, went down the stairs, I really, uh, so I transitioned between undergrad and graduate school, like complete legal and social transition, um, that was in 2005, and then there I was just really embraced by, you know, um, a lot of professors there and was able to kind of blossom and really kind of um, see that I actually really liked public health and and population uh-huh. health stuff like that. So I just kind of stuck with it, and I had always volunteered in uh, for different HIV/AIDS service agencies since I had even since I first got to college in like ninety eight and ninety nine. I had been always volunteering. I love volunteering. So um, uh-huh. and I had been. What part of what
2: part of, of Kentucky were you from?
3: So I'm from Louisville, the home of the Kentucky Derby, but I went to school in Lexington, Kentucky at University. Uh-huh. And uh so yeah, while I was there I worked uh volunteered at an organization called 8 Volunteers of Lexington and so that kind of I was worried being a transgender woman, you know, a young person with not, not a lot of connections like. Was I going to be able to get a job and be employed and stuff like that? So I kind of thought, like, oh, I'm already doing this, and people accept me in this way, and maybe this is somewhere I could work. And so I – that's kind of how I ended up there. I didn't really, really, like, survey around and, like, choose something that was – whatever it was like, okay, this is the way I can – I'm interested in it. I'm already kind of doing this, and the education is just going on top of that. So – uh-huh. That's a long story about how I ended up uh-huh. choosing public health and uh-huh. HIV and you know,
2: it's, uh-huh. it's funny. I remember reading somewhere that you were from Louisville, and I thought of that for a couple of reasons. I know that um, I went to the Kentucky Derby a couple of times, you know, with my friends and, you know. <laughs> but then also one of my, 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 very, my very good friends, Monica Roberts is originally from Louisville. And now well, no, she lives in Houston.
3: Houston. Now, she's originally from Houston, but lived in Louisville for a long, a long time. Everybody mm-hmm. gets that confused. I thought the same thing. But, uh-huh. Yeah, she's from uh-huh. Houston, but she lived in Louisville for a while and wrote for one of the papers there and stuff. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Like okay.
2: So, because mm-hmm. I was going to ask you, you know, like, was there a, and often you hear people like, whether they're in our community, that you don't see anybody who looks like you or, or you feel like really isolated. And, but going from Louisville to Lexington, was that like enough of a shift to where you started to see people who were like you? And I, I know you said that, how your instructors embraced you and encouraged you. Was that, you know, was that a, a good shift for you to go from Louisville to Lexington?
0: Uh,
3: so yes, because, uh, I was raised Jehovah's Witness, and Mm. I needed that. It was just a good enough distance from home for me to really explore my own identity and kind of Mm -hmm. figure that out, but be close enough to home where I'm, you know, still able Mm -hmm. to see my family. So it was more um, about a mindset and just coming into my Mm -hmm. own identity as Mm a. Adult, which is I'm still still in progress, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm about to turn uh-huh. forty, so in three weeks. So I'm like, am I grown yet? Am I an adult yet?
2: <laughs> <laughs> hey, you, know, you know, what? Never, never be grown yet. You know, always keep okay. that kid part. You know, always keep that kid part. I think there's something about the ability to be able to to, to maintain that 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 joy and that fun and that play. You know, that's so important. You know. When people think of public health, most people, like you hear many people talk about, you know, like there's the health department and, you know, right. and it's like, and it's the public health department. And often in their stories, you know, I've talked to gay men who talked about, you know, I had to go to the health department. And it's almost like a, a when they hear health department, if they hear public health, it's almost like a stigma mm-hmm.
3: that somehow
2: or other when you go for public health, either there's something wrong with you or you can't afford regular health but there there's something about saying that you're receiving public health. Do you did you was that part of what made you want to go into it to bust that stereotype to make sure that people were having access to this information if they needed?
3: Um no, yeah, I guess pro- I think um I was just always wondering, kind of, yeah, who who was behind the scenes of all those kinds of uh-huh. of things? Like, I like that movie. Uh, was it Outbreak that came out a long time ago, where people uh-huh. were or diseases and stuff like that? So when I found out, so I, I think like when I found out really what public health was and the the School of Public Health at U U K was brand new it had been only started a few years before I started so um so I that's kind of how I ended up there and just realized like oh it's a new thing and I looked into it and I was like oh epidemiologist because that's what I my focus area was epidemiology you know studying epidemics or it's kind of like uh I don't know how to make it basic but it's a when you think of the people doing the disease hunting and stuff like that, those are the epidemiologists. So that was really, like, my primary uh, interest in wanting to do to do it. Uh, I didn't end up doing that kind of work because I really realized. I did an internship at the State Health Department doing uh, a, a practicum uh, HIV-AIDS surveillance, which is, you know, keeping track of all of the HIV/AIDS cases in the state, uh-huh. and, uh, stuff like that. And so, uh, using the skills I had learned in the program, like uh, I was like doing all this work. And I'm like, oh, this is what epidemiologists do. It's not just what's in the movies. It's sort of like I know these people are sitting behind desks all day, and then maybe some of them go look at you know a cluster here or there interview people, but most of it is like sitting in front of a computer doing that stuff. So I was like, I don't know about this. So that's how I ended up doing more of community-based health and work. So once I got my MPH, I started working as a case manager for people living with HIV and AIDS. Uh, yeah. And I moved back to Louisville at that time, and I I actually had, I was the bilingual <laughs> I think I've gotten uh-huh. rusty with my Spanish, but at the time it was very fresh in my in my head, and I was able to do that for a few years. Um, so yeah, like once I actually saw kind of what people at the health department did, the epidemiologists that worked at the state health department did, I realized like that wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to be more, you know, around people and kind of using like uh-huh. that I do like data, and I do like explaining kind of these things and being that kind of interface between maybe a community and a researcher. So that's kind of how I didn't consciously make that choice um, in sort of like how I ended up where I am today. It just kind of happened, but I guess I made that choice back then when I decided like, oh, I studied epidemiology, but actually I don't want to be an epidemiologist, so uh-huh. I guess I made well, that you know, and ended up here.
2: Yeah, I mean, because I, yeah. I know, I remember that movie, Outbreak, and there is something that looks kind of like, it's like you're like a, a disease detective, you know what I mean? It was something <laughs> different that looked yeah. kind of cool. When you got in school, okay, first of all, you're a person of color. Uh-huh. You're a woman. You're also yep. a trans woman. Did you, were you like, Were are there many, were you like that that person who like sort of stood out because, it's a field that not maybe you didn't see many people of color, women, or trans people, or LGBTQ people.
3: I did, yeah. So actually, so when I was in when I was in undergrad, I was pretty. Um, I had started taking hormone therapy uh, kind of on my own because it was hard to find um, someone to prescribe it for me at the time. Um, I and I also couldn't really afford it, but. Um, I started taking hormones on my own and I was looking very uh, androgynous and getting kind of like picked on by a lot of people. So I was really um, kind of uncertain about if I wanted to stay in school at all. I thought about like leaving school and doing being a hairdresser. I thought, okay, it's going to be mm-hmm. easier for me. Like I'm a transgender woman to like go do hair and nobody's going to make fun of me or be like yelling at me while I'm walking down the street if I go to be a hairdresser, that's where they expect to see, you know, transgender people and, and, and stuff like that. So I thought about that, but then I, um, you know, I just had people who believed in me. They weren't necessarily tra- tra- people of color or even people uh, in the gay community. I had a professor that really, uh, I was in a class of hers, and I something happened that made me kind of, get behind in my work and I went to talk to her about it and she just really opened up to me about um being human and kind of like just she held me and she ended up becoming an advisor for me and helped me finish my degree uh my undergrad Uh degree and then from there I um met once I got to do my master's I was uh my therapist actually knew of a, uh, one of the faculty members there who was a member of the community, uh, but not necessarily a person of color, but, uh, you know, a queer person. And so I got a graduate assistantship to kind of like work 10 hours a week and, and then get my tuition paid and all that stuff like that. So, and she was like, well, pick him, or I told him, and then he picked me to work with him. And so then, I've had a kind of long-standing uh, relationship, kind of mentor uh, thing with him ever since. Since then, since 2005, and he he um, really encouraged me and said, you know, gave me a safe space within that space because it it's, it was Kentucky and even though it's like a college campus, people still, you know, they can be weird. Their biases uh-huh. can be, come out even if they're like, oh, we have to be nice to this person. Uh, there was another person also there who um, had I had been keeping in touch with him as I went through undergrad because I was like, oh, I'm going to go to medical school. Today. And he, he was uh, had a program or was over a program that was, like, really getting people into the different medical colleges there. And then he moved to the new School of Public Health. And so I wrote him and was like, hey, I want to come – get my MPH, and maybe go to medical school later. But I need to tell you that I'm going to transition in between, uh, you know, like I graduated in May or whatever it was, and in between I'm going to transition and change my name and do all this stuff. And he wrote me back, and he was like, you know, we had a transgender student here. just And it was a brand-new school. So, I mean, he's like, yes, we, uh-huh. you know. Everybody will adjust and we'll figure it out. And he always had an open door for me. Again, not a, he was a cisgender, heterosexual, uh, white man, but always nurturing, always had an open door. And so I would say like kind of those three people at the school, I didn't really have a lot of professional mentors that were people of color and also queer that just, they didn't really, I didn't, find mentors like that until probably, I left Kentucky, I hate to say. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah.
2: You know, because I, I have a friend um, who actually I interviewed and who is gender fluid, non-binary, and he was talking about like when he got into college, he's also African-American, and he was talking about how, first of all, when he walked in, there weren't many many people of color in general in the class, and then because, it was clear, you know, like people are like, oh, what, are you gay? Are you what? You know, and then he, he said it was like a constant thing of explaining himself and in some ways to where he, like, felt like an outsider and, and like you said, thought about quitting, but there were people who encouraged him to sort of hang in there and, and do it. Now, one of the things that he told me, and I'm wondering about you, because he went into, like, journalism communications, and when he graduated, people immediately found him jobs to report on the LGBTQ community. It was like a silo, like it's like, oh, well, you know, you're, you're, you're gender fluid. You say you're non-binary, or here's your niche. Did you find that once you, you were in there and you're working on your master's that, you know, they didn't say, well, you know, Mari, let's find a thing to get you to Africa to look at Ebola, but but it was like, Mari? <laughs> here's HIV and AIDS or is that like that niche that did they push you into that or did you find that, that there were more openings for that or was that really as you went along and started to understand things, the area that you really wanted to, to really focus on?
3: Yeah. So actually, yeah, I didn't, I didn't get a lot of assistance. And I don't think that that's I mean, I'm not going to like hold that against anybody. I don't know that
2: mm-hmm.
3: they gave it to other people, but, um, one thing that happened, how I got my first job is that i um there was someone who came into town there was a so the h i v a program in Kentucky they used to put on a annual conference I think maybe even they did it twice two different ones twice a year or once a year um, and they were in lexington and someone who knew one of the professors there in the health behavior program was like, hey, do you have any trans students that might want to come? I'm doing, a like, an all-day workshop and whatever. So um, I went there to kind of speak to this group of people about being transgender or whatever because people had asked me to do that a lot, period. Something I don't like doing now necessarily. <laughs> but, uh-huh. you know, the, the, back in the day, especially the, the, now, there's, you can just get online and look it up, you know. But back in the but day, thank you. You, like, yeah. you had to, like, do that kind of stuff because it's like, yeah, I want people to understand who I am and, like,
0: and what have you. So um,
3: so I went and did that, but while I was there, people were like, oh, my God, we need you to work with us. And I didn't want to do it at first because I felt like... um again, like, oh, I'm studying epidemiology, and I want to be this disease hunter, or like, you know, whatever. Like, I want to go do this. I don't want to be working, like, one-on-one with people, because it was actually for case management, which, like, again, like, more of something a social worker is trained for than Uh um, with with my training, but um, it actually was a good thing for me, And, and I had talked to my therapist about it. I was like, what should I do? Like, should I stay here, and because I wasn't exactly finished with my MPH. Um, I was like, should I stay here and go? She was like, I don't always recommend this to people. But she actually recommended that I try the job out and, you know, finish, you mm-hmm. know, stay connected to the people to finish my degree, my MPH, um, because she thought I would really benefit from from that, from, like, working and being in an a uh-huh. People want you know wanted me to like be there because yeah I was I was worried about uh, you know being in Kentucky being a transgender person of color when people like I mean this was like I said just yeah in the mid two thousands but even that was just still a little strange to people you know uh-huh. Uh-huh. then I mean when I when they hired me at the at that agency I mean people were like shocked they were like. Oh, Like, but not in a bad way. Like, a lot of the clients are like, you know, it really took them back that here was a person like them actually working there. And some people wanted me to be the case manager some people, uh, you know, didn't. And so it it makes a difference when, you know, you hire people who look like the community Mm -hmm. you're serving. I mean, it was like a prime example. Like, I experienced it firsthand, being that person that somebody decided to hire and, you know, just make people feel differently because I, you know, it was funny because even in that within that job, people would come up to me and say, girl, you inspire me. And I'm thinking like, I'm thinking so many bad things. About I'm like, oh, my God, I left school. I didn't even finish my MPH yet. And um, like, you know, I'm not doing what my MPH was. And I'm thinking like, oh, you know, this isn't I'm not doing me, I'm not even doing public health, you know, the self critical ways we can all be mm-hmm. especially people, marginalized people. Um so it was strange, you know, because people would like us the clients and would come up to me and just be like, It's inspiring to see you work here and stuff like that and I didn't feel like I was really doing anything mm-hmm. that big mm-hmm. but it makes a difference.
2: Well, you know, I, I think that that's that, but that's it, you are making a difference, and you know by being there and being you and doing what you're doing and what people recognize to it, you know it's so important you know i I look forward to the day i mean i have I have friends and family and who are my friends and family period the end, you know, and then they're community fam friends and family. Mm-hmm. And to not have that point where you don't have to always go and uh, go in and do okay, well let's do trans one oh one. You know, it's not about that. But also the fact that you don't have to do it, but that someone can go and sit and they see you mm-hmm. and they know that you're going to do that. And you know, at uh, we, you know, you and I have talked about the Ruth LS Center, and I talked to a young woman there who's like. I think Amara is like in her early 20s. And she said it wasn't until after she got there because the person who, who is over this second story thing, uh, Liliana, I mean, she's got, I mean, Liliana is so qualified and so poised and so amazing that, you know, Amara was like, you know, seeing her made her recognize that she could do anything the possibilities, you know, like as far as going and getting an education and doing that. But like you said, it was seeing someone because prior to that, she said that a lot of her life had been hidden behind a computer and to see someone who was like her. I mean, so, I mean, that's important. That is just like really so important.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so we're going to take... Oh. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No,
2: go, now, okay, well, I want to take our first break and then we'll come back and finish this and and talk about your big move to California. So we'll be right back.
0: This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com.
2: And we're back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Mari, you know, so whether you like it or not, you've become a role model. (laughs) And I know, but that sort of makes makes you feel kind of, you know, for a moment you're going like, but I'm, you know, I'm just being me, you know. So with all the ups and downs and everything, do you find now that as you're sitting and talking to people, that sharing the ups and downs parts of it, not going into, you know, like, well, where are you and what did you do, but the ups and downs that, that you know, you went through certain things, but you hung in there and you found people who supported you and did that. Do you find that when you think of yourself, not so much as a role model, but are aware that people are looking at you and maybe looking to you, that this is part of what you want to focus on?
3: Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, I was just uh... – So just last weekend, I was in uh, D.C. for the first, you know, the inaugural Uh National trans visibility March on D.C. And Uh uh, I was there on behalf of where I work at PrideNet and Stanford University. But um, sitting there talking to some people who I know, and I've talked to them before, but they were like, girl, like, do you know... (laughs) That I look up to you and these are people that are older than me and people know them. I don't even know if people know me, but, uh, so I'm, I'm not a big, like, sto- I don't share my story. I love like telling uh-huh. stories. It's funny. Cause we, even when you asked me to do this, I was thinking like, oh, what do I have to say about? <laughs> like, uh-huh. I could talk about the project, but, um, I knew I had to talk about myself and I was, had some like, what, what am I going to talk about kind of feeling. But anyway, um, and it just, yeah, it does surprise me, but it does let me know that it's kind of that the thing I talk about in what you saw in my presentation that, you know, uh, when we are doing community engaged kind of work, whether it's in a research institution, or a, a service agency, or a drop-in center, or whatever—like it just—it just really does matter that people uh-huh. that you that people feel seen when they look at anything that you do. So the people that work there, the things you have up on the walls, the things that you hand out, uh, and so I do realize that you know being in some of these spaces. And being able to, like, just have that perspective. Yeah, there's little battles that I have to fight. And, turn, and I don't go out and tell everybody. like You know, I have to tell these people this. Like, I don't... That, you know, <laughs> that. Mm-hmm. Some people, like, you know, there are people in different movements who are like that, but that's not me. Um, so I'm, like, I have realized I've had to look out into the world and look at people who have, like, quiet power. That's what I call it. It's just, like, mm. it's people who, like because I'm realizing that, yes, that I, there's something about, you know, yeah, persevering and, like, going into different spaces where I may feel uncomfortable and just, you know, um, but in, in wielding that quiet power and not necessarily, which is not to say that I'm a quiet person because I am very vocal, but I think that, you know, it's it is a skill that I've realized that I must have some some kind of skill that, Enables me to be able to like be in different spaces, and I just actually have to give myself credit for for you know for this and I think that the main thing I think about turning forty is like that I just number one I just can't believe it, and then i I keep looking back and I can see myself as a as an adult, but in different phases of being an adult and be like, oh. It's all making a little bit more sense and like what can I mm-hmm. do moving forward. Um, so yeah, moving forward I think I'm going to try to just have more of um, of that awareness that it does mean something right. to me where I am and Mhm.
2: But you know what, I think that, that that quiet power is so important because it makes you accessible. I mean, and it also makes where people can sort of look at it and not be intimidated because I know those people to where like, you know, I've heard their story so many times. I can tell you, you know. I can tell you their story because I've I've heard it, you know. And in some ways it's sort of like, well, you know, they you almost wanna not put them on a pedestal but it's sort of like, well, you know, where that, you know, and I'm just I'm just living my life, you know. So I think that that quiet power, and I like the way that you said it, that is so important because that is as important. And, you know, because you never know who's watching and doing it. And I often encourage people, That's why I think being out without, you know, you don't, and I tell people you, you don't have to be out and be, you know, outrageously or all extra. You can just be out and you never know who's going to see and connect to that. Mm-hmm. And that's going to help them take that step. Now you did something to me, which is like brave. I mean, you moved for. I mean, you talked about moving to Lexington because you said it was away, but it was close to family. But you moved across the country. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I often, I often threaten. I mean, I'm actually. I, I did move to Atlanta. I think I stayed there a year and then I came back home. But you moved across the country. Now,
3: yeah, uh, that was not. Uh, it sounds shocking and surprising to some people, but um, I'm a very spiritual person. I really believe in, like, manifesting and stuff like that. So it didn't come as a surprise to me when somebody was starting offer, starting to offer me jobs in California because I had written it down and been saying, like, this affirmation about it for, uh-huh. like, a year prior to that. Um, so actually, it was sort of like... I was at a conference, so uh, I can back up a little bit. So I ended up working at the health department and being able to do more like population kind of based things and and do that public health work that I got my degree for. So and I did end up there, and I ended up finishing my my MPH. My my professor that I, mentor that I talked to you about earlier, he came and I had just been working, and I was like, oh, I'll go back and finish it one day. And he wrote me an email, and he was like, you have to finish it before this calendar year is over or it said they're going to make you, like, start up. So I went and I finished it while I was at my other job. And um, so I did that, and I was working at the health department there on harm reduction initiatives for people who uh, inject drugs because Kentucky was having a horrible um, epidemic with hepatitis C virus. It's kind of some of the... Uh, rate HCV rates in the country due to people injecting uh, drugs, so I got connected with a lot of national organizations that were just ready to come in and help us in Kentucky. They just didn't really have a good entry point from what they had told me. It was like people, you know, they didn't know where to reach out or whatever, but um So I reached out to them, and then they came into Kentucky, and they were working and um, getting, you know, new exchange programs set up and stuff like that. So that was great, and I felt like, God, I really was a part of this. It kind of felt great, but I also felt like it's time, like, it's time to move on. Like, I felt this personal sense of, like, accomplishment from, you know, finally being like I went to school to do public health and I, I did uh-huh. something in public health I actually did do something that like made a difference. And I was ready to just like I was like what do I really want out of life? And I was at a conference and I saw all these like empowered some queer, some not queer people, some of color, some of, just people that were my age with kind of my degree that were like doing all these great things and I was just ready for something else. So I went home from that conference. I went to in San Diego and uh, was it 2014? No, it was 2014. And I wrote an affirmation. Like I will be, you know, by this time next year, I will be living in California. Like uh-huh. I have four things on there that I wrote. And so I would say it like every day I would say, I like to ring bells and light. <laughs> so uh-huh. I was saying it every day and every day. And then, yeah, about a year later, someone I was at another conference and I was like and it was kind of weird because someone who worked with me at the health department was like Mari like you've got to get out of Kentucky like go network with these people like because I would always like go to the session and go to my room and you know I might eat with my coworker and then go up to my room and watch TV or whatever and she was like no come on you just buy a beer or something just sit down here in the lobby and like just start talking to people you got to network and because of that, because of me doing that, people are like, where did you come from? They're <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. like, there's a black transgender woman working at the health department in Kentucky. <laughs> uh-huh. program." And I was like, yeah, I work there twice. Uh, so they were like, no, we got to get you out of there. And so, yeah, then I met somebody in L.A. that was like, uh, went to go interview with him for a job there. And then... Another. Then I went to another conference after that, and um, someone stopped me in the hallway who I'd been seeing over the years, and she knew of an opportunity that she kind of thought like, I think you might be good for it. Do you have your resume? And I had 20 copies of my resume. So I handed it to her, and I went home and thought like, well, something is going to happen. And I wasn't surprised, again, because I had already been like saying this stuff every day, uh-huh. you know, like. Trying to manifest it or just um, believing in all of that. So, yeah, she told me, like, we went and had frozen yogurt at the kind of after the conference, and she was like, somebody's going to call you at the end of January. Somebody called me at the end of January. I did a phone interview after that, and then I got the job. And I was like, I didn't think twice about it because, like I said, I had been saying I wanted this to happen every day mm-hmm. for the past year or so, so I was ready for it.
2: Oh. Wow, you know, I mean, because that's amazing, you know, but often, you know, how you put it out there, and I believe it too, you know, you you get it in your mind, you put it out there, you don't know which door is going to open, but that door is going to be open and you just have to be ready to see it and walk yeah. through, you uh, know, what has been the biggest cultural shock or not even cultural adjustment that you had to make moving from Kentucky to California?
3: I will say one thing, and I talk to people about this all the time, and this ties into my personal life and my work life, is that, and this is a positive adjustment, but it's also, it's like a little bittersweet because the level of care that is available out here in California to a transgender person it's just not available everywhere in the country. And it's one of those things Uh, where, like, I told my mother, I was like, forget the great weather, the open minds, and all the the beautiful scenery. Like, yes, I want to stay here for all those reasons, but the number one reason why I don't want to leave California is because of the medical care that I'm able to receive here. Like, between what what insurance covers and just uh having doctors that, you re, you have a normal doctor-patient relationship with people who are, like, telling you what you need to do for your health. Like, my doctor's reminding me to, like, go get... To, I need to keep testing your estrogen levels. They're not going. I never had a doctor tweaking my hormone prescription when uh-huh. I was in uh, Kentucky. I usually... I had to tell the doctor, like, from what I found off the internet, like well, this is how much I should be taking, and they're like, oh, well, okay, well, this is how much we get post and women, so I guess we'll give you that much, or oh, this sounds about and whatever, and never checking, checking that or anything like that. Uh, I had some other health issues that, you know, required surgery, um, and they were covered by my insurance with a regular copay like anybody else would pay, for any other operation that they had, you know, on their knee or wherever, you know? Uh Um, so having that here and just, it's like, I don't have to worry about it. Like back in 2009, you know, I, and actually, so yeah, around the time I was in graduate school, I was also like going through most, most of my surgical transition actually happened there. It actually, before I left California, I had had surgeries, um, but, you know, I had to go out of the country to have them. I had to put the money together
2: to uh-huh.
3: do them, like, some, you know, like, so I just had to really um, feel like I was out there on my own, like, finding the resources to, like, put care together and feel like, you know, I was taken care of. So, to me, that has been the biggest positive adjustment just, you know, and but still, you know, like, not everybody in California has access to these resources. I mean, uh-huh. A lot of people, I said they have access to it, they just may not be aware of it. Um, or, you know, may face a lot of other barriers to accessing it, but I mean, it is accessible even through Medicaid and stuff like that. So, uh-huh. yeah, I mean, that's just you a know, big difference.
2: Uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And, you know, that, but that's really huge, you know, because in Atlanta, and I know I'm sure that you've heard it in other places, I've heard it in other places that people talk about the accessibility of healthcare and also that they don't have to go, that the doctors don't know what they need or you go in, you know, how many times do you hear lesbians say, you know, how many times do I have to go in there and tell them, no, I don't need birth control. You know, and like you said, that you had a doctor ask you about your estrogen levels. And I mean, that seems to be one of the, the areas in our community that access to healthcare and to doing that, that is is really a high priority with a lot of people. And you find many people in our community who don't go to the doctor because they don't know what someone's going to say, or they don't feel that their questions will be answered or because they've seen all this go on, that they go in not expecting good care. So I can see where that would be like, like huge, but you know, your family's still in Kentucky. Do they come up here to visit you?
3: Uh, yeah. Um, they, they, uh, well, before I did that, I just wanted to um, also just loop back around because you said something that also, it reminded me of kind of what, something that, that even happened when we were at the Brunch and Learn, when I was talking going through the quotes of what we had gotten in our listening sessions and somebody told their story about once they got married. Like their doctor was fine with them. Until she got married and changed her name to her wife's last name, and then you know the doctor was never the same, and she hasn't been back. Uh-huh. You know, th- that's uh-huh. kind of the stuff that we. So I, here at PrideNet, we had we did some listening sessions around the country, uh, some online, some in person. You know, because I talked about it in the <laughs> presentation. But yeah, uh-huh. I mean, it would just killed me when I was in. Uh, Tennessee, talking to people, and, you know, it's so, it's very close to Kentucky, but also, like, everything they were saying, it just kind of brought me back to realizing, like, the big, the big difference of me moving to California, because they were talking about everything that I was going through, literally, uh-huh. up to, I moved in 20, 2016, like, this doctor will see me, but won't give me hormones, and whatever, and driving, you know, I had a doctor who was, like, dying to put me on Adderall, because I have ADD, Uh And I refused to take it. I was like, no, I'm not taking that. But she wouldn't prescribe me hormones, which is like what I needed as a transgender person. But she would Uh like prescribe me Adderall. I'm sorry, not Adderall. (laughs) So, yeah, because of that, I was like, okay, I'm going to start going back to my old doctor in Lexington who, you know, may have some stuff to learn, but treats me as an entire person, prescribes my hormones and is respectful and is a really good doctor on top of that. So, yeah, that's just, it's just one of those things where, like, work and personal life just keep interacting. Like, the more you talk to people, you just get brought back into, like, how uh-huh. as you can be to, to live in an area where things are different. But back to your question <laughs> about my family. Uh-huh. They, they're uh-huh. coming out here for uh, my birthday. So I decided that I wanted to, I didn't want to have like a big party. I was like, I just want my family here, you know, show them around. My mom loves to come out here. She thinks it's beautiful. (laughs) She's been out here like four times um, since I've been here. And um, I go back. I don't like to go back as much because I feel like it's more fun to bring people out here, to <laughs> uh-huh. have them come here and stay with me than to go back to Kentucky. But I do think that you cannot get good barbecue in California. So. <laughs> I had some good barbecue while I was in D.C. I'm like I yeah, just I have tried and tried and tried to get good barbecue and good sofa. <laughs> yeah, I don't know any people you know houses to go to, so I've gone to the restaurants here and I'm like uh eh. It's, it's good, but it's uh-huh, not good. Uh-huh. so I do miss, you know, kind of like I'm a good cook myself, but I don't have a lot of people to cook for here, so I I miss the food. I miss uh-huh. like I miss not only the food that other people cook, like my grandmother and stuff like that, but I also miss the opportunity to cook for people, uh, in you know larger groups of people. I don't really get to do that here. But other than that, uh-huh. I love it, and I don't I don't plan on turning back. <laughs> At all. Mm-hmm.
2: Now, was the job that you have now appointed, was that the job you were offered that you went there for?
3: Oh, no. So the job I came here for was a job with a non a nonprofit organization called, uh, at the time, well, now it's called Impact Mobile Action for Gay Men South. Uh, it had a different name at the time I got hired, and they had a project for they were doing for transgender women because, you know, in, in a lot of movements uh, in public health and HIV AIDS and stuff like that, uh, so much transgender health data was kind of aggregated into gay men's health information. Uh-huh. And so people, you know, transgender people have really had to fight for that disaggregation, you know, not lumping everything together just, you know, based on someone's Gender assigned, or sex assigned at birth. So, um, initially, the people, this uh, organization, Impact, had a group that was kind of an advisory group of transgender people, and um, they secured enough funding to have a man a, a program manager. So I came on to take that role, and I started. It was like a trial by fire because, like, here's this girl from Kentucky, I had worked at the Little Health Department and within I got there within and within three months I had to plan this uh transgender pre conference to the International AIDS conference in Durban, South Africa and I never wow. been there. <laughs> uh-huh. I just, like I barely knew how to even <laughs> make an international call, you know <laughs> uh-huh. I mean I had been out of the country before but mostly to have surgeries. Um <clears throat> So, yeah, so, yeah, within three months, like, I, I, I started and they gave me, like, they were like, this is the theme for the conference and here's the committee of people and, you know, with the committee and a lot of tears and a lot of, like, learning, you know, trial by uh-huh. fire. I was able to do that and I, I worked there for almost two years before I came here to PrideNet um, uh-huh. for, this, for my current position that I'm in where you met
2: me okay okay well let's take a second but then i want to we want to talk about your career with pride and what they do so we'll be right back on collections by Michelle Brown. Now Mari, I, what I liked about when you gave your presentation on um, PrideNet, and I think that just in, in, in what you're saying, the things that you've seen, you showed that it was by, for, and about us. You know? <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't like, you know, you were gonna have to go in and talk to some Straight doctor who didn't know whatever, and you'd have to reinvent the wheel. And that's just like how you're saying how some people bring up things and you recognize it. How did you how did you get together? How did you you find them or they find you?
3: Yes, yeah, so um, so working here, I work when I came to Oakland. I met some uh, some of my coworkers there that I became very close with at Impact. Uh, one of them is now the participant engagement director here at PrideNet and for the Pride Study. Actually, it's for the Pride Study, but the PrideNet Pride Study thing is a little confusing. So we'll just talk about the Pride Study. (laughs) So I came to work with this team on another project that they did. He told me about the job um, over, over like dinner or something, and I, I applied here. So, I had kind, of, kind of a connection that got me here. Uh-huh. Networking again that's how I got to California. Uh-huh. So I got to California, and then that's how I got to this job. It's just knowing people and being a nice person and a hard worker.
2: Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, you go out. I mean, and you and you went. You had your your whole. You went through the the slides, and you did that.
3: How receptive are people to the study? Yeah, so um, we have over 16,000 people in the study uh, currently, and, uh, you know, they want to follow people for, you know, a, long, it's a lot. It's a lot. When I do the outreach, I don't always say longitudinal because people don't know that. So, yeah, it's long-term. They want to follow people for a long time, basically. Um and we have to be out there in the community. We have to be be seen, but also show that we see other people that we, you know, uh, I think that's just important. It's like, it's, again, just being community engaged with our approach to research is kind of like a big thing that we do here. And, something that we're finding we're having to help other people with because it's not uh, the way research has always been done where I always uh, say here to people on the team like so because you know I came more from public health uh, like working in the community and I was like do people like get on social media or like walk up to you at events is this normal for people to do this to ask to like help promote your study Like people who haven't like their you know, people really believe in the price study, and they want to help uh, help us get the word out. They want to be a part of it. And to me, like I didn't have a lot of experience in this world, but uh, in this uh, arena, but I just figured like it wasn't normal in a good way. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. part of the reason why it it is like that is because we have people on our team who are from different communities. I mean, myself, again, black, trans woman, we have uh, through our ambassadors and PAC and a participant advisory committee, which you saw in the slide, um, and other advisory groups that we have. And we we have just about everybody represented. Of course, there's always more people who can be at the table, but we have a lot of eyes on what we're doing to make sure that it, um that it has the, the you know the intended effect, again, to like get people interested in it, and then also be a resource to answer the questions about how being LGBTQ affects people's you know mental, social, and physical health, because we know this. We have all the stories inside ourselves when I did the listening session, and the lady talk, the lady talked about how she doesn't go to the doctor. Because of how she's been treated after she got married, well, uh-huh. that needs to be reflected in in data somewhere, so that uh-huh. it's not just a story that someone is walking around with, but it's something that we can point to and say, "This is why you shouldn't be the way that you are, and why you should treat people a certain way." Or someone can look and say, "You know, is you know, is there a difference?" in between, like, you know, how we all interact with these forces being accepted or resilience factors. Like, you know, I think that was the thing. I talked to somebody at the Trans March on D.C. who was like, I'm a transgender success story. I don't need to be a part of your study. And I was like, yes, you do, because we don't need to just know Uh what's wrong. We need to know what is going right in people's groups and so she took the information I mean she took our stuff and she going to do it but I think that's the thing is that people have to also like get over the idea that when you want to be, when people want to do research something has to be wrong with you and something that has just been coming up lately uh that people are, you know have said that to either coworkers of mine or people who, or you know myself uh, as I'm doing outreach and stuff like that and I'm like you know, we have to break that myth and uh, and show people how we're different. So, mm-hmm. yeah, answer. I think that it, yeah. especially, I mean,
2: you would think that, like you said, it's like you—they always think that okay, these just like to find out, like to follow a disease, to follow something, but something simple like that, like how about how she talked about what happened with her wife? I mean, and that's something that's really a barrier and affects one's health. I mean, that part is like so real, Mm -hmm. but normally in a regular situation, that wouldn't have come up. It was by sitting there by by a group of people who are same gender loving, you know, and a member of the LGBTQ community that 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 kind of question, that comment would come up. And then, you know, and I'm sure that there are a lot of people who have experienced that. And, you know, so what other things have you found that that have, you have been able, from these listening things that you've gone like, hmm, we haven't been keeping track of this, so we should bring this to
3: the table? Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot that me personally, uh, I really, you know, some of us can really be in our own, LGBTQ silos, you know, I didn't really, Uh I didn't really, I knew people that were bi or pansexual, Uh and I don't have a problem with it, and I don't think about it, and they're open about it, and so whatever. And to be honest, like, I just, I had never really, and exposing my own ignorance, I never really heard or considered the term of bi invisibility uh, until we did these listening sessions, and I realized, like, Yes, you know, again, we think of our own personal stories and experience and think like, oh, the world is one way. But we have to put all these stories together to really be able to pull that out. So when when we're in this group of people and everybody's talking about how they feel invisible and how bi plus people feel invisible in LG spaces, Uh, You know, lesbian, gay spaces, Uh as as well as heterosexual places, uh, spaces. So, um, you know, again, it's just like we can all come together and create this data set that's going to be rich and have all of our stories put there together uh, and really help researchers. So, that I think in the beginning you talked about uh, asking about certain. Services or advocacy, I can't remember exactly, but and being told there was no data, no statistics about it. Uh-huh. And that's what the two projects that we work on the prize study and the all of us research program that we started the prize study here, well, not we, but to our team, the heads of our team did. Um, but we also work with the National Institutes of Health on the all of us research program, which is a large federally funded. Just Enormous project about precision medicine to come up with these uh, individualized, tailored treatments that take all of this into account. And to see that the federal government is wanting to do something like this, get everyone's health information and stories, and ask these questions about sexual orientation and gender identity, you know, there's so many opportunities for our community to be a part. Of changing this thing, so we don't keep hearing we don't have the data, you know. And I myself, as a transgender woman who looks or is looking around for, you know, what does it mean to for me to like age? Like I'm I'm turning forty. Like what does it mean when I'm fifty years old? And I've been on hormones twenty uh-huh. two. You know, there's no data. <laughs> Exactly. You have to be you have to be a part of the solution. uh, But you know, we also know that people have uh, competing priorities, and we're definitely trying to figure out ways to make it easier for people to do because we want people to stick with us for you know the long haul, so that Mm -hmm. you can answer all of these questions. You know, not just what did people say today, but what happens to people. Mm who are LGBTQ.
2: you know and and it's fascinating like you said because we don't have and and there's so much that you don't have this information and you're not and we haven't kept track of it, although it's out there, and it might be in somebody's head that if they if we don't talk about it, you know and the fact that you're tracking it over. A long period of time. This isn't like okay, fell out today. We don't care anything else about you, because life changes and things do it. I think that it, it's particularly interesting. Like the other, well, I'm a success story. You don't need my story. Yeah, we do. We need to know what 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 is it? You know what are the things? You know just like well, where one person had said that they felt that their doctor didn't want to deal with them anymore because they had got married. Well, what what's the other side of it? And how do right. Healthcare practitioners learn from that. Uh, so you want, and, and I do know, but you know, I mean, we know from Zami Noble, which is like focusing on lesbians over forty. But we do have an aging population, and so I mean, I saw something about a guy who was. They said he was the oldest person. I mean, he was a hundred, and they said that he had been HIV positive for I forget how many years. And you're having people who are being you know who living longer with, with with diseases, HIV, with all these other things. So, this study, you want to talk to young and old, right?
3: Yes, young and old um, people who are well, not so well, like successes and what. However, mm-hmm. you feel to bring bring yourself and your story to the pride study and let us know and and stick with us over time. Um, if you're into more of the biomedical because some people when I we you know, we always talk to people about just being a part of health research and letting them know the two projects we work on. And some people really get into wanting to do the 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 all of us route and they're really into the science y like these people are gonna test my genes and do all that stuff. So mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. always has just surprised me that people are interested. Like, our community is showing up. Our community, uh, it makes it like a significant proportion of the people in All of Us research program, uh, over 10%, um, at least at the last that I heard, uh, the the latest data that I heard about. So to think that that much of our community is joining this large federal health study, um, you know, even as people come up and ask us questions about or kind of like are you sure they want to sit here with our president, you know, but mm-hmm.
2: our
3: community are doing it and it doesn't matter like if we're at a pride festival, like I was at, went to New Orleans Pride for, for PrideNet and talked about our two projects and you know, people are like, oh yes, I want to sign up like put me on everything, like uh, people just really in our community are really interested. Of course, there are parts of our community that May still feel either you know that they're not ready to do it, and so we have, yeah. we have to keep uh, we have to keep trying to reach out to them and, and get them in in the studies but because we mm-hmm. need everybody's story so
2: what do you say to the conspiracy theorists who go like What are you going to do with this information, and who's going to have access to it, you know, and who have these visions of, you know, them being spied on and stuff? What do you say to them?
3: I mean, I'd say that um, all of that is taken very seriously, and I don't want to miss, uh, I don't memorize all of that information, but Uh it's on our website. Uh, It's on the Pride Study website about how this data is. Is uh, it's secured? It's something that is taken very, very, very seriously. Um, and I can send you links if you want to put them in your show notes to all of these I will. questions uh-huh. where people can get the FAQs. Uh, uh-huh. And same with you know with with the All of Us Research Program. I mean, you have a massive amount of federal resources that are devoted to you know this project and. Having people test the system to try to break in. I mean, um, huh. and it, it, you know, not not. Um, it hasn't been something that they take lightly. I mean, when uh-huh. uh, one of the uh, part of the leadership of of all of us came to San Francisco to talk to people there she made it very clear that they know that, you know, one mistake can unravel this huge, huge project. And same with the private that, you know, we have, that has to be our utmost number one priority is keeping people's information safe um, and making sure that it can't be connected back to them. You know, you want to give their information, Mm -hmm. they want to make sure that, not only is it secure, but that it can't be connected back to them, and that's something we just don't have to worry about with either study. But again, uh-huh. I'll give you that information just so people can read that for themselves. Uh
2: huh. Yeah, because I mean, you know, because uh, in fact, when you were giving it, I know that there were people who sort of, who sort of came up with that, and you know, particularly, you know, in many black communities and poor communities where we have seen things go wrong with studies, you know, um, that there is that suspicion of things. But here, I mean, you talk a lot about that, and I think that it it went, there are a lot of questions that went back and forth. Who can use, this this information is going to be valuable to a lot of of people, you know, healthcare providers, providers, Researchers, I mean, I imagine would, if, if you had had d- continued on in epidemiology, I mean, you could have probably even like want to tap into some of this information. But who will long term this be a value to?
3: Yeah, it's a value to individually. It's a va- it's it's a value to all of us as as community members because. It's going to generate information that can be used for advocacy, for treatments, and things like that. So that's a general benefit to everybody. But, um, you know, it is an issue because some people, what we've seen, even as we did the listening sessions, is some people say, well, the same barriers that you already talked about, people accessing, being being a part of health research, actually... Um, are going to prevent them from accessing the treatment, you know. So uh-huh. that's something that I don't think, you know, a research community maybe is accustomed to being, you know, held accountable in that way. But it is true that uh-huh. if, unless but we have to be a part of it, we have to be a part of these processes, we have to uh, take some ownership of it, in our community to hold people accountable to make sure that we can access those treatments. You know, we do the we say this ahead of time, like you're gonna use my information, but you need to make sure that, you know, if there's a medical breakthrough, I have access to it, you know. So that's uh-huh. one thing that does that I feel comes up has come up when with our listening sessions, not just with community members but even some of our community partners who work at LGBT organizations, as we've digested a lot of this information and looked forward into the future that comes up, you know, someone even mentioned like, well, yeah, they use this information in California to change things, but they don't use it in, you know, New Mexico or California or some place like that. So, um, so yes, it's it's a benefit to to all of us who participate in health research, whether it's these two studies or not, but we have to, like, be engaged all the way through to say, hey, researcher, come back and tell me how this is important to us and how I make sure my community can take advantage of this information because we showed up and we participated. We want to be, you know, seen and and reflected and see some change. So, of course, people who want to access the data, that's traditional. You know, they'll be able to do their studies and get their Ph.D.s and, and funding and all that. But I feel like really coming from a community perspective, if we want to make sure that any of these things have value for us, we have to stay engaged. We have to take the surveys. We have to say, uh, you know, I don't like the way these questions are being asked. Or this is where you should be if you want to get more people in our community. Um, all those things will help make it better. They'll make all of the projects better and then, again, following through
0: to the end to make sure that
3: we see the benefits. It's, it's on us as a community.
2: And you know what? And really, and in some ways, the missteps that have happened in the past and with uh, the, what you talk about there, like you said, it should make us be more proactive, make us stay more on it, you know, because... You know, we all know the story of Henrietta Lack. And, yes, they used her cells and they came up with all of these these cures for so many diseases. And members of her very own family died from some of those diseases because they didn't have access, you know, mm-hmm. access to health care. So, I mean, knowing these things and knowing these stories and it, it, it should be, you know, like I said, we have a responsibility to now that we know what can happen, that yes if we participate this is what we must demand does happen
3: mm-hmm.
2: yeah, so 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 what do you have do you have another move written down somewhere where in a year you're going to be you're you're going to be someplace or are you going to be you plan to be there at least in california long term
3: yeah, so, you know, what I have written on my affirmations list is uh, something I'm taking action on right now. I'm actually, I've been taking piano classes since January. I I always wanted to, I love jazz and stuff like that, so I've always wanted to um, learn jazz piano, and I've tried to teach ah. for a long time. So my goal is, you know, to just, keep learning the piano and and be performing for people live, like within two years or something like that. That's my goal. Well, <laughs> and, just actually, right. I, and just to actually have a personal life because, you know, to get <laughs> up to this point, I have not had the most uh, healthy personal life. I've had plenty of fun and whatever, but I have not paid attention to a lot of aspects of my personal life that I think uh, it's become important and clear to me that, you know, you have to you have to have everything. You have to have all of it. You have to be paying attention to everything. So it's more just having a richer experience of life in general. Um,
2: uh-huh. <laughs> well Mari, I wanna thank you for taking time with, to be with me today. I wish you a happy birthday, my Libra sister. <laughs> you know, I'm one of those October <laughs> girls too. Um, you have a very happy birthday and thank you for the work that you're doing. And the, and the way in which you're doing it. I mean, I think that this is important work, and you do it well.
3: Thank you so much. And, again, so we're at org if you want to find us. And thank you uh-huh. so much for having me on here to share my story and talk about the work that we do. Thank you.
2: And I will put those up because, you know, you can go to pridestudy.org, Say so you want to participate, and the rest will be easy, reasonably.
3: <laughs> and,
2: uh, and and you will find Mari at a pride somewhere near you or in, a, in your city. And you are a, a a community event or LGBT center, or are you planning a program that you think that this information would fit in with? What's the best way for them to contact
3: you? They can contact me at mari, M-A-H-R-I, dot bahati, B-A-H-A-T-I, at Stanford, that's S-T-A-N-F-O-R-D, dot E-D-U.
2: Okay. Well, Mari, again, thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your day, and I will talk to you soon. You
3: too. Thank you so much. Thank you.
2: Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
1: I want to thank today's guest, Mari Bahati. Mari is the All of Us Research Program Engagement Navigator, working to engage yet to be reached sexual and gender minority subcommunities who are new to health research, who have experienced barriers in accessing health care, or who have had negative research experiences. You can learn more about Pride Study Research at pridestudy.org or the All of Us Research Program at joinallofus.org. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or a topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.